0: When we gather to study God's word God seeks to do lots and lots of different things I'm sure in our lives And probably in a number of different ways To suit our weaknesses, our inadequacies, our frailties One of the things that I'm sure God seeks to do Whenever we gather together is to equip us to live in this world. To equip us to live in a spiritual battle. Ever since God cast Satan out of heaven, there's been this ferocious spiritual battle that's been going on. It was worked out in the Old Testament. It was worked out in the New Testament. And it will continue to be worked out through all ages until the Lord Jesus Christ returns finally to vanquish Satan. If you're a child of God, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then Satan has a a special attention to you. He can't get at God now, he can't get at Jesus. Jesus ascended into heaven now. But he can get at what's most precious to God, his children, believers, you and I. And it's Satan's desire to attack you whenever he can, wherever he can, and in whatever way he can. I'm going to begin now with a a quote. It's a horrendous Quote, but I hope you understand why I'm going to make it, particularly in light of Haman. It was made by a man called Adolf Eichmann. Some of you will know who he is or was. He was one of the main architects of the Holocaust. And this is what he once said. I will leap into my grave laughing because the feeling that I have five million human beings on my conscience is for me a source of extraordinary satisfaction. Horrific thing to say. We know the number was actually a lot higher. The reason I make that quote is this when you read chapter 3 and you think of Haman I actually think Haman would he'd have quite liked that quote because of what his plan and scheming was for all the Jews in the Persian Empire heard in the children's talk Haman was a an Agagite he was a descendant of King Agag the significance of that man King Agag is that he ruled the Amalekites at a particular time in history the time he ruled the Amalekites was the time of King Saul and God gave King Saul an instruction a command kill all the Amalekites wipe them off the face of the earth. <coughs> they were wicked. They were vile. They were evil in God's sight. And that's what God commanded Saul to do. Wipe them off the face of the earth. Now Saul disobeyed God. Several hundred years later, a descendant of those same people, Haman, was alive and well. And he was full of hatred for the Jewish people. And he was in a position to do something about his hatred. Many ways we could say chapter 3 flows from the disobedience of King Saul to God. And of course it also flows from one man's absolute hatred of God's people chapter 3 records the planning the scheming of a a mass genocide of every Jewish man woman boy and girl throughout the kingdom and it came about didn't it in many ways because Mordecai was faithful to God it was wrong for him to bow in homage to either Xerxes or Haman. And he refused to bow the knee. And that's where Haman, I suppose, began his scheming as to what he was going to do. Haman, he was stoked by hatred of the Jews. And we read, didn't we, how he went to King Xerxes and he himself had very few commendable qualities. And he schemed to get this edict passed. If you've got your Bibles open, in verse 13 of chapter 3, destroy, kill, annihilate every Jew throughout the kingdom on a specific date. It's about 11 months away. And then see what happened, how the chapter ends. After that, Haman and King Xerxes sat down and they enjoyed a bottle of wine together. They drank wine together. After all these people, they didn't follow the rules. They didn't fit in to the kingdom. They were now going to be destroyed. Things will be better. There will be more unity. What about the other reaction? We're told in the town of Susa, and the vast majority of the Jews did live in Susa, but we're told later on in chapter 3 that wherever they lived in the kingdom... They were to be destroyed. There was absolute, utter bewilderment, shock, horror. And then we come to chapter 4, where we find first Mordecai and a little bit later Esther on something of the horns of a dilemma. Or I could say they, they were caught somewhere between a rock and a hard place. It's very easy to see how uh, Esther could have related to that expression. It wasn't around a rock and a hard place in her time. But if you read verses 13 through to uh, 14 in chapter 4, he, that's Mordecai, sent back this message. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. You and your family will perish. And who knows, that you may have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What a dilemma Esther faced. Either do nothing... Wait, and on that specified date, when he's found out you're a Jew, you'll almost certainly be killed as well. Or, risk the king's wrath by going into his presence. And remember, death was the automatic outcome. The king had to prevent that by raising the gold scepter. The reason she's on the horns of a dilemma is because she seeks to follow God and to obey him. And maybe there are times that you can think of in your life where you faced a decision where to obey God may make your life more difficult. Not on the scale of Esther. Maybe you can think of a time when obey God might have meant that a friend would have laughed or mocked you Or, or maybe you'd have lost a friendship because of your stand upon the truth of God's word or maybe it would have caused you a problem at work maybe it would have meant that you'd have lost your job or countless other things think back to those occasions what choice did you make What choice should you have made if it's different? But three words we're going to look at. One is pain, one is prayer, one is planning. First one, pain. Note the words. Kill, destroy, annihilate. You only need one of them. But three were used. If you were a Jew anywhere in the Persian Empire, it was a desperate time for you. The two most powerful men in the empire, maybe across the known world at that time, certainly the two most influential people in the kingdom, they want you dead. In fact, they want all your race killed, destroyed, Annihilated. I hope you can see who's behind all this. Go back to where I started. Ever since God cast Satan out of heaven, Satan has been filled with hatred for God and the kingdom that God is establishing. Ever since God pronounced that curse upon Satan in the Garden of Eden. Satan has been seeking and scheming how he can destroy that line, that line that eventually God's promised seed would come from. Here, Satan is working through these two wicked men, isn't he? Xerxes and Haman, to destroy that line so that there wouldn't be a line for God's Messiah to come from. Centuries later, King Herod sought to do exactly the same, no doubt. Satan working through him. Kill all the babies, kill all the toddlers in the Bethlehem area. And that way, God's promised Messiah will not grow up. What's that chapter got to do with us? Well, One thing, of course, is that Satan, he's a defeated foe, isn't he? Defeated at the cross. But he's still alive. He's still scheming. He's still seeking to destroy the work that God is doing of building his church. And he'll do everything he can to tempt you, to discredit your testimony, to keep you quiet. To hurt you and if it were possible to tear you away from the very palm of God's hand in which you're held. To tear you away from God. In many ways that keeping quiet. Not having a message, a testimony. That's exactly what Satan was doing at the time of this passage. Many of the Jews did live in Susa but we know that they were dispersed right across all 120 provinces. From India, as we heard, to, to Greece, the, the, upper, uh, um, the upper Nile uh, area. Disperse them. Keep them quiet. And if you keep them quiet, if they blend into their society, they'll disappear. And their God will also and that's so often what Satan tries to do with the church today, isn't it? Come back to the passage, we find Mordecai. He's dressed in sackcloth, he's got ashes on his head. That was a sign of mourning, it was a, a sign of grieving, a sign of sorrow. Not only was Mordecai a, a Jew, but we've also heard earlier, haven't we, He happened to be the the cousin of Esther. Esther, who'd been chosen to be Xerxes' queen five years or so earlier. She was part in a way of his... harem. she she may have been late teens, early 20s, something like that. Now, we might think there was something glamorous about being that. There was nothing glamorous about it at all. Called into the presence, summoned by the king, the despot, to be used in any way in which he saw fit. And no was not an answer he expected. Mordecai clearly loved his cousin, he brought her up. He'd got a real care, a real concern for her. Yet he goes, and for the sake of the Jewish people, for the sake of God's honor, he goes and he asks her something that he knows may result in her death. He knows or he finds out she's not been summoned into the king's presence for 30 days. It shows she's not on the king's Favoured list. I'm sure the king hadn't abstained from summoning other women. It just, she wasn't favoured at that point in time. Can you imagine what must have been going through the mind of Mordecai? The mind of every Jew throughout the empire, particularly those who were parents. In about 11 months' time, us and our children are going to be slaughtered and butchered. Unimaginable anguish. Now remember, we know the end of the story. But they didn't. They were living through a period of God's providence. Providence. It must have been a heart-wrenching time. They were living through the providence of God being worked out through the events that were occurring. They didn't know the end of the story. Or maybe you've experienced having to live through God's providence. and It was a time of great pain in your life. And now you can look back. And you can see how God's hand was upon you at that period of time. How God used that time of difficulty to strengthen you, to build you up, to equip you for for acts of service, to be a help, to be a blessing to others. But at the time, if you're honest, it was very difficult. Why, Lord? Maybe all you could do was trust God even though circumstances just seemed so alien to what you expected or hoped. Well, maybe you're living through that now, and maybe you're wondering, why, Lord, is this happening? Maybe you're struggling to see light at the end of the tunnel. And I'd exhort you, all you can do, but it's the best thing, is to trust God. That you're in the palm of his hand, he doesn't make mistakes. But living the Christian life can be painful. There was pain, and there certainly was in the empire. But secondly, prayer. I remember a good number of years ago walking round one of the intensive care units of uh, it was St James's Hospital with uh, a friend of ours who worked there and he made a comment that uh, i forget his exact wording but it was along the lines of there are no atheists on a children's intensive care ward when things are that desperate people want to believe in god they want to believe in the power of prayer Now these people, these Jews, they knew why they were in exile. God had made that clear, it was their disobedience. They knew they were in exile because God had placed them in exile many years before. God had delivered them into exile. But they also knew this, they knew that God had promised that this exile would not be the end of the story for the nation. And now try and imagine that dilemma. They've got that promise that they're hanging on to from decades before. But think about what's happening with this edict. And it wasn't that they could appeal to the courts or they could appeal to a higher authority. At the whim of King Xerxes, a law was cast. And that was going to happen. How do you balance God's promise and the reality of the circumstances? Now, it's very clear Mordecai believed in the promises of God. He didn't know how God would fulfill those promises, but he knew somehow that he would. And it would certainly seem from the text that he thought maybe I didn't know why it happened at the time and I didn't want Esther to, to leave me, and be taken off to the palace. It probably got a good idea what would be happening to her while she was in that palace. But maybe now I can see why in God's providence that happened. Maybe Esther is the means through which God is going to preserve his people. And that's why he went to the palace, even though he knew the the hatred of Haman towards the Jews, the indifferent of Xerxes. He knew how erratic his nature, his thinking was. He went because he had a strong faith in God. He was sure of the promises of God. And in verses 12 to, to 14... We read Esther's response to what Mordecai had sent when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai. He sent back this message. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but you and your father's family will perish. And then this, And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. He was sure the Lord would win. And Mordecai, in, in spite of his circumstances, in spite of what appeared to be the natural trajectory of events, He stood firm on God's promise. He was confident in God's promise. And I think that's why we see the reaction that he made back in verse 3. There was fasting, there was weeping, there was wailing, there was mourning. You don't need to turn to this, but in the book of Joel, it's in chapter 2. The same words, the same expression is used. and Then it goes on to almost give an explanation as to why the people were doing that. And the writer says the reason the people for doing that was they knew the promises of God. They knew they'd grieved God, but they knew the promises of God. And they were holding on to God's promises because they were certain that God would rescue them, that God would vindicate them, that God had a plan for them. And I think Mordecai did also. He knew God had a plan for them. There was God's promises. And Mordecai trusted the promises of God than the circumstances in which he found himself. And that's really important for us. And that's the same choice as we face, isn't it? Who do you ultimately trust? Which voice do you ultimately listen to? Is it the one that shouts loudest? The voice of the world that wants to say to you, God is dead. God doesn't care for you. God has left you. There's no point in trusting in him. The vast majority of people have seen that. Why haven't you? The grass is greener on the other side. But do you trust and stand firm upon the word of God, the promises of God, the voice of God? Who do you listen to? Who do you turn to? Thirdly and lastly, planning. Mordecai's prayers were the foundations for everything that he did. It shows his utter dependence upon the Lord. But he doesn't just pray, does he? There's action. That's why he goes to Esther. And even though Esther initially responds as she does, with hesitancy, and I can understand that. I don't think any of us should criticise her for her initial reaction. Once she thinks it through, once she reflects upon what Mordecai has said, once she reflects upon her circumstances and the past providences of God that have got her into the place that she is, her faith in God, her trust in God, it rises, it, it comes to the fore, doesn't it? And that's why we, we see her response Right at the end, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. There is a sense of urgency. Those just in Susa, do it now. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, she's already made her mind up, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. What she calls for is serious prayer. Serious prayer, but she resolves she will act, whatever the cost. It's a bit like, isn't it, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? We will not bow. We will either burn, or God who has the power may save us. But we will stand firm we will not bow. Esther, I will not remain silent. I may die, but God has the power to save me. And God has the power to use me in how he will save his people. And that brings us face to face, doesn't it, with God's providential power. It's interesting, Mordecai, He had all the information. He knew about the edict, but there was nothing he could do about it. Esther, it would seem, didn't know what was going on until Mordecai was able, through the messenger, to tell her. But she does have access to the king, albeit risky. Isn't that a picture of how the providence of God sometimes works? One has knowledge, but no access. The other has no knowledge, but access. And God happens to make them cousins. And that's the same for us. You and I, That there may be times where we wish we lived in a different location, or that we'd got a, a different job, a different career path. Or maybe we're struggling in an area of our life, or maybe we're struggling on a temporary basis with something at church or whatever there may be a myriad of different things but be clear if you've been open to the Lord's leading the Lord has gifted you in a particular way he has equipped you in a particular way you're a work in progress but he has gifted and equipped you in a particular way he's brought you to the place where he wants you to serve him, and to use those gifts. And let me say, things might not be easy for you as an individual in whatever area of life it is. But if you're in the place God wants you to be, let me say, there's nowhere better on this earth for you to be. And there's no place better in God's plan for you than to use the gifts and the resources that he has blessed you with. You're in the right place for God to use you for the building of his kingdom. And that was exactly the case for Mordecai and Esther. But also, of course, we see here the connection, don't we, between divine providence and human responsibility, how they work together. It's a reminder, isn't it, of how Christians are called to be brave courageous, bold. How they're called to to trust in God in times of difficulty, times when we're called to stand on the truth of God's word, rely upon the promises of God. A friend of mine summed up the application of chapter 4 using three words, turn, think, and trust. We find ourselves in a, a difficult situation, We find ourselves just not knowing what we're to do. Why is this happening? We're called, aren't we, to turn to God in prayer. We're called, aren't we, to think how the word of God, the promises of God, apply to our circumstances, our situation. And then in full and certain faith, we're called to trust in God. If you want an illustration, think of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. God's enemies, through Satan, they were on the attack. We see Jesus, don't we, overwhelmed with grief and sorrow, and in his humanity, recoiling from what lay ahead. What does he do? He turns to his Father in prayer he thinks things through. Think about the words he prayed. My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He's thinking through, isn't he? And then we see his trust. He goes and he says to his disciples with a flint-like resolve, Rise, let us go. The betrayer is coming. And isn't that the pattern we see with Esther? Turn to God in prayer. Think through what the word of God says, the promises of God. And then trust God. None of us know the details, the future of our lives, what our lives hold for us. We can trust a God who does. We can trust a God who has ordained them, a God who loves us, a God who promises to be with us every step of the way. These chapters, they remind us, don't they, that God is all-powerful. They remind us, particularly if we know the rest of the story, that God will have the victory. Sometimes our Heavenly Father acts to save His people just through straight acts of power, doesn't He? Think of how the uh, Hebrew people escaped from Egypt, the parting of the, the sea, a the great act of power. But at other times, it's through the wisdom of how his people respond as they trust the promises of God, Mordecai and Esther. I want to encourage you and exhort you. You can follow your Heavenly Father with great confidence. You can trust him wherever he leads you. And you can rely upon him as he lead you through the providences he has in store for you in your life he's not just your heavenly father he doesn't just love you he's also the lord of the universe amen let's close in prayer and then we'll sing heavenly father I do thank you for the truth of your word the reminder of your sovereignty But Heavenly Father, may we take away maybe those three words, turn, think, and trust, in how we're to respond to difficult situations we find ourselves in. May we, each one of us, stand firm upon the promises in your word. May we have a great confidence in you. As we face difficult circumstances, maybe individually, maybe collectively, as a a church, maybe within our families. May we stand firm upon the truth of your word. May we cling to those promises as we cling all the more tightly to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll stand and sing.